welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Dr. Nadine Hatchesh-Harram and she is a consultant plastic surgeon and head of clinical innovation at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust here in London. And in 2015, she drew on her surgical experiences and her passion for innovation and education to create Proximy, which is a technology platform on a mission to save lives by sharing the world's best clinical practice. And they do that because it is an augmented reality platform that allows doctors to virtually transport themselves into any operating room anywhere in the world to visually and practically interact in an operation from start to finish. This is an epic episode where you're going to hear all about Nadine's incredible background, her achievements and what they're up to at Proxmi. So I hope you enjoy. So Nadine, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Nadine? I'm in central London today. Oh, lovely. Are you at home or are you in the office? I suppose you're not in the office with... Uh, I'm in the office with, today. Oh, you are in the office. Amazing. Yes. You must be the only one in the office with it being locked down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice to have an extra space that you can go to, definitely. Um, yeah. But yeah, listen, the way we start these podcasts, Nadine, as you know, you've listened to a couple, thank you for doing so, is that we uh, get guests to tell their stories. So um, yeah, by all means, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you take it away? I often, when people ask about the story, I always think, you know, where do I start? But it is perhaps helpful to take it back to some of the childhood um, experience, because I think that has influenced um, to some extent who I am today. Mm. So um, I initially, you know, my background is Lebanese. I grew up in California as a a young child, but during my teens, um, my family decided it was time to move back and kind of meet the wider family. So I moved back to Lebanon and spent about 10 to 15 years there. But the time that I moved back was that kind of immediate post-war experience. So quite a difficult environment, an environment where perhaps not everything was available. And um, during that time, of course, had experienced um, kind of a few mini wars or things that happened in that environment um, that broke out. And so as I think as a teenager, I saw quite a lot that perhaps teenagers or individuals of my age shouldn't have to see. But that probably influenced that kind of early desire, that burning fire to kind of give something back and do something that would be meaningful to to the kind of population that I, that I lived in. And so at that early stage, I decided I wanted to become a reconstructive plastic surgeon. I had seen so much trauma that I wanted to think about how do you restore form and function and how do you give people a chance, a second chance at a quality life, something that, you know, they can feel has purpose. They can, you know, work, they can use their hands, you know, simple things that we often take for granted. Um, And so having seen a lot of that, those blast injuries um, that influenced me. And so from the age of 14, I think I decided to become a surgeon and went on that journey um, and eventually found myself um, in London um, training uh, in the NHS, which, which I love. Along that side that though, I think when you've been exposed to those kind of environments, there's always that kind of void. You feel like you want to, you know, you, you want to give back at scale. You feel like you need, you need to have a purpose that is bigger than you. And I found that, you know, just the work that I was doing on a day-to-day basis wasn't filling that void for me. And so I started to get involved a lot in global health initiatives Every year I travel maybe three to four weeks to different countries and support some of those um, missions in congenital deformity or other um, opportunities. And for a while, I think that that was really helpful for me. And it was something, um, you know, I felt I was giving back. And I did that for about 10 years. And I think after 10 years, you, you know, I started to look to the literature 
and the literature started to you know publish numbers like five billion people lack access to safe surgery and it started to look at kind of variation in care and variation outcomes and I started to look back at the 10 years as a trainee and having been involved in global health and probably recognized that kind of stark reality that probably the impact that you thought you were making was very, very small. And, you know, how could I actually make that big impact in surgery? Yeah. How could I try and help patients get that best care the first time every time? And so I started to look to innovation technology. This was back in sort of 2014. Um, I was a gamer as a kid. My dad was a computer engineer, so perhaps I had oh, a bit nice. of an affinity to that, and Amazing. that seemed to be the kind of the quick place to go. And what look. was your game of choice? Well, I was a Nintendo uh, player as a kid, yeah. um, and then I moved into Sega. But <laughs> it clearly, I'm giving my age away here. Um, but, uh, was it the Mega Drive that, that the brought Mega you Drive. over to Sega? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so during that, you know, started to look at, you know, what is, what are ways that we can actually scale expertise? Why is it that surgery is very dependent on co-presence? You know, wouldn't it be amazing if I could dial into operating rooms around the world, support surgeons, support the scaling of expertise, and then thinking more broadly within my ecosystem of surgery, you know, the device industry is constantly bringing new devices to the market. And how are we actually training surgeons and scaling that um, around the world? So that was really the genesis of Proximy, the idea that, you know, could we use solutions like um, a platform that could allow you to virtually scrub in? And um, I'll be honest, I wasn't looking to set up a company. In 2014, it was just an idea, perhaps a bit of a hobby, you know, um, something I wanted to do. Did that for a couple of years. But the impact was so great that in 2016, um, CNN covered it. And said, you know, could this be the future of surgery? And at that point, and I can tell you in, later on in the discussion, the story that kind of prompted that article, um, I decided that it was probably the meaningful and the right thing to do is to set this up formally and scale this globally. And so that's really kind of what brings me to where I am today. And Wow. Yeah. So before we go into Proximy and everything to do with that, I just want to take you back to something that you said or about your background, really, that obviously growing up in a, in a post-war environment has clearly had this, this effect on you and given you this drive and motivation. And it seems to me that the more, of, more entrepreneurs that I speak to in health tech, the more that drive and motivation from a, from a place or something that means they want to make impact bigger than themselves, the more I speak to entrepreneurs, the more common that seems to be. And it seems to be that growing a health tech company is so difficult that you need this motivation. You need this kind of North star. You need this purpose in order to run through all of the brick walls that you're going to face every single day and trying to grow that company and make that impact. And it seems that you're no different. And, you know, what a, I suppose, what a motivation to have. It, it's, it's obviously something that scar, you know, scarred you is probably the wrong word, but it's certainly something that has lived yeah. with you and, and still does clearly live with you. I mean, do you, do you think about that a lot? Do you think about that purpose a lot? Do you ever have days where it's more prominent than others? Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I definitely think that they're, the pur purpose and mission are really important because I think you would agree, you know, having uh, or running a, a health tech startup, you know, can be incredibly exciting and the adrenaline and the enthusiasm and everything that, that comes with it but it can also be a lot of hard work and it's got a lot of ups and downs. It's volatile. It's changing minute by minute. And so you need that kind of, 
that that willingness, that perseverance, and that tenacity to move forward with it, that courage as well. I think courage is a big one that people often underestimate. And feeling brave to sort of say, I'm, I'm going to do it, even if it fails, I want to do this because I know it has a purpose. And I think what I've done is, you know, having that North Star, that mission is something that's driven me. But what I'm really pleased to say is that that is perpetuated across the culture of the team and the company. Yeah. What we've done is we've really built um, that North Star mission across the board. And I think that's so important when you think about team um, purpose, team retention, um, team drive. To, to give you a very simple example, you know, every Monday we do a, a stand-up, like a company stand-up, all 50 people are we're on a Zoom now, I guess, because we're all virtual. <laughs> but it always starts with what's our mission and vision story this week. And it always starts with a story of how the solution impacted someone's life or change someone's experience. Because I think we can get so bogged down with, you know, technology stack, proposals, client metrics, KPIs, but actually just take a step back and look at the big picture. What are you trying to do? Why, Why is there a need for this? What problem are you solving? And if you have that North Star reminded, it's essential. And I think it, personally, I do reflect a lot on that. And I think it's, you know, that fills me to some extent with pride because I feel, you know, even, you know, if I were to die tomorrow and this is, you know, as far as we've gotten with things, I still feel we have made impact and we have yeah. changed people's lives. And I think that's, that's something to be proud of. I love that. And there's, there's two things I like about that. The first one is that I think what you just described there, frankly, is, is good leadership. I think when it comes to leading a team of people, that highlighting that vision, that North Star and being able to galvanize a team towards that is so important in a leader. And I think when it comes to even hiring and hiring for people that are amenable to that, I think everybody that's aligned to that mission, when it comes to health tech, and yes, okay, it's other sectors but uh, as well, but I think in health tech specifically, having those, those mission-driven people just means you'll be able to go much further, much quicker, I think. And I think the other Agreed. thing that I liked about what you said was the, the element of even if it fails. I absolutely love that. I think... If you can, if you can finish that sentence and you're, you know, and that's your company that even if it fails, I'm happy with where we've gone. Even if it fails, you know, somebody else will keep it going and it'll do a good thing. I think if you're, if you're in the, the, the right things for the right reasons and you've built a company in the right space, I think you're able to say that. And I, I really like that. It's like you and I were talking about before, you know, with, with me starting SOMEX and it's solving a problem, you know, helping people communicate better about what they do in health tech. And like, I kind of feel the same way that I, I need to do this because even if it fails, I know that it's the right thing to be doing because I know that so many people need this to help them communicate their vision to help patients, etc. So it's, it's it's super important and i think so many people perhaps can catch themselves before they end up in something they don't want to be in by perhaps asking them themselves the question you know if i'm growing this company if i am an entrepreneur i've got this idea even if it fails would i would i be happy and i think that's a really good way of measuring that stuff i i completely agree and i it's, i think it's you know the point that you made about the team moving faster and further because of that is, is spot on i mean yeah. you know what what the team you know my team has delivered in the in the short period of time is astounding and i think it is because 
there's that drive, you know, everyone in their own special way wants to be part of that difference making. So I, I completely agree. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a great way to sort of drive and galvanize the team. hundred percent. Yeah, I get it. And for you as well, I think another thing that you mentioned early on was, was scaling your own impact. And I think, again, that is such a common feature, particularly of, I think, medics that, you know, clinicians that are looking to to expand their own impact beyond the patients that they've seen per day. People tend to think, you know, how can I help more than this amount of people? And it, you know, often the way, and obviously the people that I speak to, it's a bit of a biased sample, but end up in entrepreneurship. But you know, like we've had people like Chris Caulfield, who was a nurse. We've had many, many, many doctors, and so I think it is a common feature that the people that are, I suppose, entrepreneurial that happen to to land into into medicine and are a clinician in some way, shape, or form, end up needing this itch to scratch. And again, you know, that impact at scale seems like a really common feature, and I think it's a nice way of describing it, right? Because some people can you know, wrongly perhaps see it as greed or wanting everything or wanting a company or wanting to look like this or that. And it's, to be honest, the people that are successful, it's, it never seems to be that. It's never seems to be about the optics or, or anything along those lines or financial reasons because no. God, God, there are so many easier ways to make money than trying to, try to build a health tech company. You could probably just go into investment banking and, uh, and return most of it pretty quickly. But um yeah, it's, it seems to me that, as I say, creating that impact to scale is a real common feature. But let me ask you about Proxmi. And I want to talk to you about when did you have the idea? How did, how did the idea come to you? And, and how did you turn that idea into reality? So it was back in 2014. I mean, I'd been trying for a couple of years before that, really trying to keep in touch with the the, the places that we were traveling to and supporting and thinking, you know, how do we move from this kind of parachute in parachute out type support to like a continuum of support? And I think, you know, two or three things I'll probably give as a background before that kind of penultimate moment. I had spent about four to five years um, around that time also working with medical device companies. I was very interested in new products and how do you product launch um, new techniques and devices? Mm. And I became a key opinion leader and I, I probably spent three, four years just packing suitcases and flying, doing day trips to all different cities in Europe to support them in training and scaling their expertise. And at some point I said, this is crazy. Like I spent two days on the road to do three hours of actually meaningful interaction with these individuals, whether it was nurses or doctors. And I, it was a time when I was also trying to stay in touch with different global health initiatives I was involved with. And you know, I think it was 2014, I was in an operating room in Lebanon. I was sitting on one of those footstools. And what had happened was we had organized this whole week of training for surgeons within the region from Iraq and Syria um, and different parts. And unfortunately, things got very dangerous kind of a few days before this week was going to start. And none of those surgeons came. And so we had all these patients lined up to train them on cleft lip and palate surgery. We had surgeons who'd flown in from the US, from the UK to work through this workshop for a week, and we had no one to train. And I was sitting there kind of on the stool thinking, is, you know, this is just becoming crazy. Everything is getting hindered or obstructed by this kind of ability to travel to each other's operating rooms. Yeah. And why is it that, you know, we can only work together for standing together um, in the room? And I started to think about, you know, could there be a solution and, you know, found some engineers. And I remember sitting at a coffee shop and just drawing out, you know, Pokemon Go had just come out. A few other things were happening. <laughs> Google Glass had come out. 
And I just thought, why are we trying to complicate this? Like all doctors carry a phone, a tablet or a computer. Could there not be a solution that could allow me to virtually scrub in and collaborate in a really simple way without all this cost obstructive hardware? And, you know, I remember speaking to the family, I said, look, I'm just going to put some money into this, get some engineers to develop this platform for us and test it out. So did that um, and, you know, did some testing, tested it in Peru, in South America for a year, wow. had a surgeon there in a small town of Trujillo. She had a lot of cleft, cleft lip patients, couldn't keep up with the need, but also needed to refine her skills so she would have less revisions. Um, reached out and said, look, I, I'm happy to be a test bed for you guys. So we put the system in her operating room. We had a surgeon from California dial in. And after a year, the numbers were just incredible. Like she was upskilled by 30%. She had improved her efficiency by about 40% because she was able to do more cases quicker. Um, and we were starting to really see the positive impact of this. And then eventually it was 2016, April of 2016, a friend of mine, he was an A&E doctor with me here at Chelsea, um, asked if we could use our solution to support um, one of the doctors he knew in Gaza. So there's a doctor in Gaza who had a patient with a bomb blast injury to his hand. And this patient, Ali, was the main breadwinner for his family. And he really needed to have his hand reconstructed so that he could actually work. And so the surgeon reached out and said, look, I'm, I'm a very good surgeon, but this is quite complex. Is there someone who could help me? And traditionally, that's always been about trying to get patients out of these zones and move them to another country to get the operation. But those things can be complicated and long-winded. And so, I, so we just said, look, we'll dial in and we'll help you. I got a hand surgeon to dial in. They reconstructed his hand um, in sort of two hours. And the patient, you know, was home. And, you know, we found out a few years later, went and retrained wow. to be a nurse. Wow. Yeah. And that, that April of 20, <laughs> yeah, and then that April 2016, CNN caught wind of the story through the kind of media outlets on the ground in Gaza yeah. and reported, you know, is this the future of surgery? And so at that point, I just thought, you know, this, I have to do this. Um, sat with the family, you know, had that, that discussion you have to have where you're basically telling them I'm going to be working, you know, 500 <laughs> hours a week. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, I had three kids at that point. So, wow. uh, so yeah, but uh, yeah, that's the story really. Good for you. That is awesome. And so I'm super interested in, in, a, in a few more specifics. And obviously, perhaps it's my background as an anesthetist that, that I want to know this, but I want to talk about what you mean by dialing in, how that practically works and sort of, is it, I suppose, remote help? Is it, is, is the future of this then taking control of the instruments remotely? Like tell, tell me about that dialing in element. Sure. So um, I'll talk you through the kind of the concept behind it, and then I'll walk you through the technology. So as you, as anesthetist, you'll probably be aware, I mean, we've been often trained with that mantra of see one, do one, teach one. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, <laughs> for me, outrageous to tell the public, outrageous. by the way. <laughs> I know. And so when I sit back and I think about it, I'm like, geez, that's, that's like, yeah, I don't know if, we, you know, it's an, I mean, it's, it, there's phenomenal surgeons that have been trained on that, but I started to think, you know, if we could refine that, to something that's more of a continuum as opposed to these like three buckets that are independent. <laughs> Thank God. Um, wouldn't it be better to call it prepare, perform, and perfect? Because actually you would know this. I mean, surgery and anything technical or practical is not just a moment in time. Like we're Absolutely. constantly 
preparing, seeing how others do things. We walk Absolutely. into each other's operating rooms. You want to see how <laughs> visualizing you know, it in your sleep, visualizing yeah. it in your sleep. Yeah. Then you want to do it. And when you do it, you know, it's great to have that coach and mentor with you through those first few cases so that you yeah. accelerate your learning curve. But then imagine you had a digital footprint of that. Imagine you could record every single performance and then go back and review it to perfect so mm. that you can build that continuum of prepare, perform and perfect. So what the solution is, is a web-based application and you can have it in iOS and Android as well. You just log on to my.proximy.com, you put your user login details and you can create a case and you can invite different people to it. That case can be streamed from any operating room anywhere in the world. It relies on simply a camera or video output from the operating room and a screen. That video output could be from a laparoscopic device, a robot, an open case and a camera. A lot of different ORs are set up differently. So we are device agnostic. We can work with any device in the operating room. We take that feed and we stream it in the cloud and you're able remotely sitting simply on your own personal laptop. I could be sitting here in my office and I can dial into a case in any hospital and I can interact with the surgeon, not in the form of haptics or being able to sort of touch any of the instruments, but I can actually put my hands into the surgical field they'll be able to see it on the screen and they'll be able to follow my movements and my gestures through the ah, procedure. I see. So it's an augmented reality layer on a live video stream. So it's got a telecommunications base and then a visualization piece, which is the augmented reality. And that visualization can be your own hand. It can be anatomical tools or structures. Um, it can be imaging or scans that you've taken that are relevant to the procedure that basically take a very basic audio video communication to a much more multi-sensory immersive communication, which in surgery and procedures like in anesthetics is important because it's very technical, it's very practical. What we've done since then is we've also layered the final bit to that, which is the artificial intelligence layer. So if you imagine that you are recording, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of cases and surgeries, Imagine then, and you know, this was published in Forbes, of course, looking at the benefits of AI and surgery, we could start to derive unique insights and data. That kind of real-time guidance based on a sum of modern experience provided by a combination of humans and machines. I absolutely love that. And I think that firstly, I think it's really interesting, like, <clears throat> excuse me, technology aside, I think there is this new paradigm of learning, first of all, which is you don't have to both be there at the same time. You don't need the teacher and the student there at the same time. You can hang the information in the ether or the internet or whatever you want to call it for then the student to access whenever they want, go through it at their own pace. And it's almost, you know, the way we, we absorb content now, if we throw that into my world, you know, none of us really tune in live to, to the BBC to watch EastEnders or whatever at 7 p.m. whenever it comes on. Like people just stream all this stuff. And it's the same way that people educate themselves now that this is a new paradigm, I suppose, that, that, you're, that you're then making use of or indeed driving forwards, particularly in medical education because then you layer on everything that you've just said. And it's interesting because you consider, you know, how many people can benefit from that. The scale of it is enormous and it's so simple in so many ways. There's obviously an, a horrendous amount of complexity, I'm sure, behind the fact it looks so simple. And don't get me wrong, I know that that exists. But the way that it's then presented, you know, as an augmented reality layer, um, it, it, it just seems so simple to me. And the fact that 
you can then obviously, <laughs> instead of trying to say, you know, through someone's ear or, or even pointing, you can literally just place the, the, the laparoscopic arm exactly where you want, want the, the person to put it. It obviously just means that that mentorship, that continued guidance can occur from across the world, which must give you know and if we look at that example right of the of the bomb blast to the hand and that person needing that support you consider even even the performance of that surgeon you know you consider the performance of that surgeon where they've got someone you know in their ear telling them what to do maybe someone in the room and this is somewhere very close to somebody being in the room with them because they can feel so much more relaxed that they've got this expert literally in the surgical field with them, albeit in augmented reality, but still able to see and feedback in real time and, and give them that support. So my, I guess my question here is, of the benefits that you think this gives, how many benefits are there and how do you guys quantify them, I suppose, to, the, to what would be, I guess, the customer, which is the, the institution that would be putting this kit in and helping their surgeons? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple of points which you brought up, which are really important. I think in the, in the first hand, you know, if we think about even our training here, right, in the NHS, you know, imagine you could see what was happening across a lot of the big centers in the country. You know, our, our training is very much siloed to the deanery or to the area that we've been allocated to. But imagine you could actually crowdsource training opportunities across the country, across the NHS that could allow individuals and trainees to really drive and self-direct their learning and perhaps yeah. have a more comprehensive outlook on different ways surgeons are doing things. And perhaps that may have an influence on the bigger challenge that we have here, which is the variation, right? We have a significant amount of variation in quality and, you know, Gerf so has true. published on that. So why not think about an, a, you know, a mechanism, a platform on, online where we start to digitize the operating room. We start to create that video logbook of every case. We start to build me mechanisms and methodology to reduce variation, improve quality, and improve access to training, and then democratize that training more globally, which means that everyone has access to those experiences. And it's on demand as well as live. You could make it for that session. You can go back and review it. Any case that's recorded in the library, you can launch it as a collaborative review. Two, yeah. three, four people can communicate. So I think that is a really, really kind of important piece um, around that. And in terms of the value add and the value proposition, it is multiple. And we have published you know, quite a bit of evidence around that. So I think on the first hand, when we think about the, the, the low-hanging fruit, the thing that you know, we really need to think about, but it's really important for the future, it's around education and training. So imagine you could support the delivery of training, education, and capture it in a much more meaningful way. But then moving forward, as we think about health systems and medical device companies, you know, the big challenge is how do you continue to deliver care at scale when you have expertise siloed in different hospitals within a hub and spoke system or different centers within a wider um, trust? This will allow you to bring that expertise anywhere that is needed. You know, one example, for example, uh, that happened recently was the case that was published in the Sunday Times. So we had uh, a fantastic surgeon at our hospital who needed to do um, a really difficult resection of, of a cancer metastasis that was around the vessels in the abdomen. She knew the expert, the kind of one of the global experts on this robotic procedure is based in Seattle. She was able to dial him into the case with her and they were able to work through the case to deliver this amazing surgery for this patient. She is a great surgeon, but having that kind of extra level of support 
almost, I mean, the way she described it, it's like, it was like having a coach in the wings, just someone there walking you through it. That patient went home at day three and was on Sky News doing an interview at day seven. (laughs) So you're able to scale expertise and care to patients that perhaps, you know, wouldn't have been as easy or as accessible. And I think for the medical device industry, it's hugely valuable because ultimately we have to recognize surgery is about three key components, right? It's about the devices we use, the surgeons that use them, and the institution that we work in. But in order to continue to bring these cutting edge solutions and techniques, we have to make sure that our clinicians are trained effectively on them. And so rather than doing the traditional model of waiting for a rep to be available or traveling to different parts of the world for training, we're able to bring that expertise to the operating room and support surgeons around the world. And so today, you know, we are in over 150 hospitals globally. We are doing close to 800 procedures a month, and we are working with over 35 medical device companies globally to support them in their kind of scale. So I think that we're just reaping the benefits now, but we see a lot longer term kind of opportunities when we think about um, the data insights we're going to get out of the operating room and how that's going to feed back into health systems and benefit their kind of mapping out of the services they deliver. I was going to ask about that, actually, in, in the sense that we've talked about this sort of new paradigm shift in education and the way that you guys are going to essentially be training surgeons. I suppose you, you might call it postgraduate training or maybe maybe undergraduate training, perhaps, as well. Do you Do you find that the doors are open for this sort of stuff, that there's not much resistance when you're looking at this and, and speaking to people and thinking about this new way of training or, or are there roadblocks to this? I'm, I'm interested just because, so I did, um, I did a, 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 a master's degree in, uh, in clinical education. And one of the things I talked about was learning and the fact that everybody should sort of learn how to learn so that they know how to teach because so many clinicians need to be teachers and this is a perfect example that then any clinician can be a teacher they can hang something up there online from a surgery that they've done and they can get involved in doing that stuff i think it's super powerful i think it opens up self-directed learning as you've said i think it allows people to go home and watch surgeries and learn in their own time and i even thought that with um, simulation training as well. I always just wished that I could do simulation training on my own in in my own room with nobody watching me so that I could get good at it before I then had to do it in front of everybody else. Um, And that would have definitely dropped my anxiety around doing simulation training. But um, I'm interested just in, I suppose, culturally, how, how this fits in at the moment and perhaps what could we do better, I suppose, or what other people could do better to enable this sort of thing to be, to be more common. I think you you touch on the probably the most important piece of all of this. So, you know, you can have the most sophisticated technology stack, but if the behavior change isn't there or the yeah. willingness to adopt that change, then it doesn't really matter what stack you've got. I mean, yeah. or, or even if it is a technology, it could be a process, it could be something else. So ultimately, um, it's why, and, and I guess if you look back to kind of where I'd started back in 2016 and 2017, I spent a lot of time trying to build thought leadership around this. What's the value? What's the benefit? Myself as a practicing surgeon, I see the value of this. Come on the journey with me. Let's look at the benefits of this together. There's no doubt that we saw an, accel- you know, an acceleration of um, interest in 2019. It's really kind of when we started to go to market properly was 2019. Sure. And we started to see engagement doubling quarter on quarter. So we were seeing an increased need and desire. 
And of course, there were a lot of other white papers that were being published at that time, like the Future of Surgery Commission, which I was involved in, um, the Topol Report, and many mm -hmm. others. But we're seeing that here and across the pond that there was a desire to move forward. COVID came and hit, and that completely accelerated that behavior change. What we thought would have taken you know, five years took three months. And in that period, we partnered with probably two biggest surgical groups. So here in the UK, we partnered with ASSET, you know, was it 2,500, 3,000 members wow. of surgical trainees, that workforce all partnered on the Proximy platform, recognizing the value. And in the US, we did the same with SAGES, which is a pretty big influential surgical group there. But more than that, we've now over the last kind of month or two, been having a lot more discussions with the governing bodies, because actually there is now, I believe, very much an appetite and a desire to move forward. That wasn't there perhaps 18 months ago. It was, you know, this is interesting. We'll take a look at it. Now it's, this is the way forward. We have to do this. We have to do this for workforce scaling. We have to do this for more competency-based approach to training. Yes. And we have to do this for care delivery and reducing variation. So we're seeing, and I think, you know, hopefully as things progress, we'll be announcing something, but there's definitely some work behind the scenes happening around this. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. The next thing I want to talk to you about is the team that you've got. And you mentioned 50 people, you know, at your, at your Monday morning standups and things like that. Yeah. I'm interested in, in, in who it requires to deliver this. You've obviously got a global footprint now and you obviously need engineers. You obviously, and the tech people, you obviously need lots of different things to make this happen. I'm super interested in how you set your team up and, and who it takes and what departments potentially you've got and that sort of thing and uh, how you went about building it, basically. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been incredibly lucky um, with the team that's, that we've built um, at Proximy. We, you know, collectively, we have you know, over 150 years of experience in delivering uh, medtech and digital health solutions. Um, I was very interested in looking at different sectors and the value that they could bring to the team. So... Starting off, for example, with the technology team, you know, our CTO actually never did anything in healthcare, but spent about 15 to 20 years building robust video infrastructure platforms mm. um, and cloud-based platforms and had been a serial CTO. Our, you know, senior VP and technical fellow has 10 years experience of building augmented reality and AI experiences in the fashion industry, like a completely different industry, but one that has very high maintenance. Um, but really understood how you deliver that kind of high quality multi-sensory experience. And my, you know, my head of product uh, spent um, many years running the tech trading platforms for Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, but then decided later in life um, after becoming an angel investor that he wanted to retrain to be a doctor. Wow. So, you know, that, that's kind of the engineering team and we'll be making an announcement in a few weeks um, the new chief product officer, which I think you'll be quite impressed with from the <laughs> Bay Area um, that you'll see kind of the, the caliber. When we look to the kind of commercial uh, and marketing team, you know, there a lot are kind of ex-med device. They've been in a, multiple companies, have seen those companies, you know, grow the corporate elements of it, what works, what doesn't work, and kind of bring their expertise to a company like ours. And it's really exciting um, to, to sort of learn from them and understand what's happening within those industries and how they move and, um, uh, and deliver at scale, operationally and kind of systemically as a company. And of course, the engineering, um, the kind of the, um, the sort of research and uh, other components. I mean, our researcher was an ex-core trainee who was really more interested in bringing together that transaction of innovation and technology yeah. and healthcare together. So we've got 
this kind of fantastic team and um, you know one of our recent hires in the US for example ex-military ex-pentax and Olympus has a PhD in surgical telementoring so really kind of high caliber and I would have to say a, you know a, a good portion of it was just people reaching out and wanting to be part of the team yes. which we're very very lucky about um, and others of course going through really incredible agencies that really understood our business and what we're working with and so Joe Mullings for example in the US who's a it's a big recruitment firm, um, really understood our business and helped us build out our team. So it's, I'm very lucky. Um, I sometimes have to pinch myself um, <laughs> um, on that as well. Yeah. It's, it sounds like you've got a real variety and that you place a lot of, um, you place a lot of emphasis on that experience that's outside of healthcare as well. And, and I suppose that that means that you get fresher ideas and different ways of thinking because as, as you and I know uh, you know we were talking about just briefly before we started recording you know when you've had that kind of indoctrination through medicine and whether or, or the NHS or the public sector it, it certainly gives one way of thinking but if you're going to build a company it certainly needs other ways of thinking too and whilst as I say that is one way of thinking that can bring some value it's so important to have that value and ideas coming from lots and lots of different directions and I'm totally with you on that and it sounds like as well you know with people reaching out to you and wanting to be part of your journey it just shows the value of building brand as well you know when you've got brand and brand name and personal brand name as well as the company brand name it means that you're you're searchable you're findable by people they can find you and they can understand what you're doing they there's enough content out there about you that um that they can read and understand and therefore want to join you and it's such i don't know it's it's such a i'm such an advocate for doing that for obvious reasons but but seemingly it certainly helps you too I think, you know, one of the things very early on I recognized, you know, to some extent, I, I kind of always had that bit of that kind of entrepreneurial flair, but I knew that, you know, you, you have to be honest with yourself. You need to know early on, you know, what are the things that I'm good at and what are the things that actually I need other experts to sort of come and join the team and support and guide me through. And so we have that very open relationship. You know, when I look at my management team, you know, it's very open and, um, and, and willing to kind of listen and hear those views and actually understanding how different industries have adapted. You know, my CFO has never worked in healthcare, but has invested <laughs> in health systems, you know, worked for a lot of the big banks for 20 years and then kind of moved into more mm. operational side. So I think you, you want to be able to surround yourself by people that are going to drive you and make you better. And that's been the, the kind of the big thing that's sort of driven me. I always think you need to hire people that are, you know, almost better than you because that's the, you, know, you want quality and quality can be very mission driven as well. And yeah. so we're, we, we're able to marry those two together. And I feel very fortunate um, uh, of where we are and that these people, you know, are, are still with us. So, Love yeah. that. And congratulations, yeah. by the way, it's such an incredible achievement, especially to Thank maintain you. that quality and that level. And I don't know, to have, to have the passion that you've got, you know, and you can hear it in your voice. And I suppose my, my, the final question I want to ask you, is that obviously with Proxmi being a big player in this space, what do you see as the future of, I suppose you'd call it education in surgery or perhaps down the line that you're going? So fast forward a few years or many years, where do you see this going? I think ultimately, you know, and, and you know, being an ESIS, you'll, you'll recognize as well, you know, the operating room is a room that's incredibly rich with information, data, interaction, human factors. All that information, unfortunately, is never really captured. It's very, so very true. analog. So true. 
And I just think, you know, if we can create a system, a platform, and this is why, you know, we've been working really hard on scaling and being in as many hospitals as possible. If you can really create that digitization engine that allows you to derive insights across multiple, you know, streams within an operating room, whether it's communication, human factors, um, instruments, um, how people, you know, effectiveness and efficiency, variation and quality, um, supply chain. There's so many opportunities. If you can build that OR data superhighway that allows you to really collect data, collaborate across teams, curate insights and share knowledge to save lives, I think that is really the future of that digital operating room, that global digital kind of environment that hasn't really caught up with other bits of digital health that have digitized like medical records and you know everything else so i do see that as the future of the operating room and i see the opportunity for um you know ourselves for example to be a main player and a platform within that but very much to collaborate and connect with many other solutions that are adding value across certain function um certain functions or certain product lines uh, that may be essential so i really hope that we can move that because ultimately you know, every patient deserves that best care the first time every time. You know, I, I can share a personal story where this has been valuable. And I think this is really, you know, the ultimate litmus test. And, you know, this is, you know, my own mother a few years ago, you know, probably two years ago now needed a really important operation um, to improve her quality of life. She'd suffered for many years following a complication of an operation. And this was an operation that the local surgeon she had was fantastic, but didn't really have the volume experience of this particular procedure. Yeah. And so she said to me, well, you know, you, you, you keep preaching about proxy me. Why don't you get an expert to dial into my operating room? So I did. And we had an expert from overseas dial into her case. The two surgeons worked together. That was all captured in a video logbook, a video kind of platform in the cloud. She was home at day five and she's living this great life now that she wouldn't wow. have had a few years ago. And I think that ease of doing that and at scale is where I want to see kind of operating rooms moving towards. Amazing. And what a lovely note to end on. Nadine, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love everything that you're doing at Proxmi and certainly making that impact at scale that you uh, set out to do from, from day one. So I absolutely love it. If people want to get in touch with you or the company, Nadine, what's the best way for them to do so? So if they just want to email info at Proxmi.com, um, we'd be delighted to, you know, we're really interested in people that are looking to join our team. We're definitely growing and scaling. We've doubled in the last year and we, we're going to probably double again. So please do reach out if you're interested. Um, or if you just want to learn more, go to our website, www.proximy.com. Amazing. And I'll put the link to that in the description of this episode for everybody listening. So Nadine, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, James. Have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.